0: Amen. Wonderful. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to just bless us as we study His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the marvelous words that we sang and, more importantly, the marvelous reality that stand behind those words. Lord, we thank You for the Lord Jesus that it was because of His role as our prophet, priest, and king, our great mediator, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus, the surety of our covenant and the guarantee of our inheritance. Lord, we thank you that because of him we can sing of your marvelous grace, the grace that comes to each and every one of us. And Father, the doctrine of assurance is one of those really special parts of the grace of God, one of those uh, special gems of grace. And one of those virtues that we desperately desire in our own lives and one of those virtues that needs to be cultivated and we need to deepen and we need to understand. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us understanding today and what it means to have this blessed assurance and this confidence that the Apostle speaks about here. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us a mind to understand but also a heart to obey Understanding that obedience is the path that leads to assurance, and that is the path that you'd love to bless, and that's the path that your Spirit desires for us to be on. So, Father, we pray, help us now in this hour. Give us uh, ears to hear what your Spirit is telling us, Lord. We thank you. Father, we bless you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're looking at the doctrine of assurance and what we what we could call... Uh, assurance and the art of pleasing God. The reason why I say it that way is because, in truth, assurance and pleasing God go together. They are essentially inseparable from one another. And it's one of those doctrines that we need to understand. It's also one of those doctrines that's extremely fragile. Uh, It's fragile because it tends to ebb and flow with our experience. And Uh, In terms of the theology of assurance, we need to understand it for what it is. It is a gift of God's grace. It is that which is worked into the hearts of God's people by the Spirit of God. And it's absolutely fundamental for our sanctification, even as pleasing God is fundamental. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles quickly to a parallel text, even before we get to Thessalonians. But in Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives us a very important parallel passage to this to show us that... When it comes to being pleasing to the Lord, we're really at the heart of what it means to be spiritually mature and what it means to be spiritually wise people. Look at what Paul says there in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. He says here, since the day that we heard of it, that is their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I mean, listen to the Potency of that. He says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to be pleasing to Him in all respects. In other words, to have a walk that is worthy can be explained by the next phrase to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what it means to be pleasing to the Lord, and that is the way that assurance is going to operate in this text. But there is a bit of a qualification. Assurance is approached here in this passage mainly from the perspective of someone on the outside typically when we think about the doctrine of assurance we're thinking in terms of assurance in terms of a subjective notion that the believer has a subjective and an experiential aspect of our inner man in other words uh, we think of romans chapter 8 that it is the spirit of god that testifies with our spirit that we are the children of god and so that is certainly what assurance is all about but if you notice here This assurance, what I'm calling assurance, is rooted in the confidence of the Apostle Paul, who is saying that he is confident, he is assured of the faith of those in the Thessalonian church. Look what it says, but the Lord, excuse me, he says in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command This shouldn't come as any surprise to us because if you just jump over to the first letter in the first letter the apostle paul has already sort of expressed the fact that this kind of assurance of a person's faith is practical it's real it's tangible it's visible it's something uh, that can be seen it's something that can be known for example in the first letter chapter 1 verse 4 the apostle paul there is confident about the election of the church the fact that they are chosen by God in verse 9 he's confident about their conversion that they've had a genuine conversion as they have turned to God from idols and going forward from there in chapter 2 and verse 13 the apostle Paul is also confident about their conviction or what we could call their commitment to the word of God And so on those many levels, the Apostle Paul has what he says, great confidence about them. Matter of fact, the uh, verb that he uses here, patho, uh, is actually in the perfect tense. We have confidence, meaning perfect tense, meaning that it is a settled issue and it has ongoing results. And that's why he doesn't you know, walk around as a schizophrenic pastor. You know, are you in? Are you out? Are you in? Are you out? You know, uh, there's a general confidence that Paul can have on the basis of their fruit, on the basis of the evidence that is in their, uh, in their faith. But I want to show you today a couple of things. Number one, I want to talk about the basis of our assurance, the basis of this confidence. Notice that the basis of this confidence is not even primarily rooted in us, in you, in the believer. But he has confidence, first and foremost, in the Lord. His confidence is in Him. His confidence is in Christ and in His gracious work in our lives, that's where Paul rooted all of his confidence. That's where it was all found. It was found in him. He believed that whatever Christ began in them, he was going to be faithful to complete it in them such that they would gain his glory. Remember he said that. Look look up at verse 14 of this uh, previous chapter in 2 Thessalonians 2.14. That's exactly what he says. He's confident that God had called them through the gospel and that in calling them, they would gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's confidence, therefore, was not misplaced. He understood that man is in himself fickle, fallen, faithless at times, faltering, as it were, but in light of the work of the Lord, in light of our mediator, brothers and sisters, our privileges, our benefits, our blessings that come from him, all of God's benefits are realized in the work of Christ. And he knew that he would not fail them. Whatever God began, he would finish. And it's all rooted in his sovereign faithfulness for his people. It does not keep because of our faithfulness, doesn't keep us because of our own faithfulness. He keeps us because he himself is faithful to his people. This is the bedrock of our assurance. Look at Second Timothy chapter 2, for example, just a quick parallel to this. He says, for this reason, Second 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect or for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with and with it with it eternal glory almost well, the same exact thing he says in thessalonians it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him uh, we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so, ultimately, rooted in the faithfulness of God is the ground of the believer's assurance. It is not trusting in our own self-righteousness. That would be sinking sand. But it's found in trusting in the rock, the anchor of our soul, which is Christ. And so many times we falter at this point. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians Uh, Chapter 3. We falter at this point precisely because of human nature. We falter at this point because we, this is the general experience of all Christians, we are so inward, we are so uh, self-focused, we are so easily self-absorbed and self-condemned that we need a perspective that looks away from self. Uh, Consider this passage here. Philippians 3 verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And in gaining Christ, I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it. So this is kind of the rub right here. This is right where we all live. It's We feel the fact that we've not obtained. We haven't gotten all the way there. We haven't arrived at the the realization of our reward, our goal. That's what he's talking about because he says, I haven't already obtained it. I have not become perfect. Meaning eschatologically mature, eschatologically perfect. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What a marvelous, marvelous passage of Scripture. Talk about grounding you uh, with the bedrock of assurance. That's what it's all about. If we look to ourselves, brothers and sisters, as the final ground of assurance, what we have is sand. If we look at Christ, what we have is the bedrock of confidence. That's what it's all about. But this assurance is rooted in God, rooted in the work of the Spirit, rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but it also has a means. There's also a means to that assurance, and that's right here. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, and what is that what is that? That you are doing and will continue to do what we command. So I want to zero in on that, that that aspect of Paul's confidence that's rooted in the believer's conformity to the will of God. You want assurance? That's where assurance comes from. Assurance comes from doing the will of God. Don't do the will of God and you will not have assurance. In other words, assurance is that which can ebb and flow it can sort of uh, it can increase it can decrease um, I think at the end of the day, because of the nature of salvation, as the Westminster Confession would say, we do have an infallible A sense of assurance in our heart. There is that. There is sort of a definitive assurance that every believer has of their salvation. It is imparted to you by the gift of God, by the Spirit of God. But in that, because we are already not yet participants in the kingdom of God, there is that not yet aspect that at times plagues us and weighs us down, and, 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 and makes our, our walk with Christ complex and hard, and at times uh, uh, complicated by sin and trials, we can cloud our vision, we can cloud our vision, so that we don't see straight as we ought to, and we don't know as we ought to, and we don't experience the power of the Spirit as we ought to in our very lives What's comforting here for you and I, brothers and sisters, is if you zero in on that word command. The word command there is telling us that there is a media of this this assurance. In other words, it comes through the word. It is the Word that is the means of this assurance. In other words, it is through engaging and believing and entrusting and in obeying the Word of God, not just being a hearer, but also being a doer, that your assurance will go up, and the confidence of those around you will also go up. I mean, what does the Apostle Paul tell uh, young Timothy? as a pastor who says, you know, give yourself to these things, take pain for these things, absorb yourself into these things, do what I tell you to do you know basically uh, you, you know study the word rightly divide the word of god grow in these things and your progress will be evident to all that's the dynamic here evident progress this is a commendation by the apostle paul for a church that is on the right track and so here the Apostle Paul is praising them because they, 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 they obey and they continue to obey the word of God. And this will increase as we abide in him, abide in his word, participate in the body of Christ in the church. I, I, careful qualification here. None of this is realized outside of the body of Christ. You know that, right? None of this for the Apostle Paul is even conceivable apart from the church. And so what he's saying is, of course, you know, it's a letter written to Christians in a church in the context of the local church. And without that, you know, you got bigger problems uh, than uh, than you know, because uh, uh, this is all worked out in the life of the church, of course. And so, as we submit ourselves to the commands of God, think of Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, verse seven, verse forty-seven. The commandment that was given there by Moses to the children of Israel as he parted ways, as he departed from them, getting ready for his death. He tells them the command that he was handing them was not vain. It was not trifle. The Hebrew word means it's not an empty word. It is your life. So so it's almost like the life-sustaining power of Christianity is inseparable to the Word of God, right? That is what's going to sustain us through the years doing and continuing to do the commandments of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 47, 46 and 47, the Apostle Paul says that we ought not doubt that what he commands are the commandments of the Lord, so, uh, especially that which we have now inscripturated in the Word of God. And so whatever he commands is what God commands. That's called apostolic authority that's why later on in the letter he's actually going to instruct the church this is how you deal with someone that will not obey and submit to our commands and that's another reason why they were so praiseworthy think of what he said in the very first letter first thessalonians two thirteen. for this reason we are. Con- we also constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, right? Emptying it of its supernatural, divine inspiration, it is no longer the through Anustas Word of God. So, and not that you didn't do that, like the liberals do. You don't do. You didn't empty it like the humanists do, the naturalists, the materialists. No, but you believe that this is the Word of God. You accepted it for what it really is. So you, you harnessed the Word of God for its metaphysical value, which is God's Word. So if you believe that this is the Word of God and you obey it, you will not deny the power thereof. You experience the power thereof you 'll live in the power thereof. Paul was directing them, therefore, to his in directing him, directing them to his commands he 's simply directing them to his teaching, his preaching. Uh, to his doctrine, uh, his instruction. So what that tells us is that the media of Paul's commands is through his letters, through his teaching and preaching, which means that you and I, brothers and sisters, we need to internalize God's Word and all the many many forms of media that that comes in, especially uh, written and spoken. Written and spoken. The level of assurance will increase as we increase both the hearing and the doing of the Word of God. And where do we get the Word of God? I thank God for uh, Apple uh, iPods, what are they called? Once you put it in your ear? Because <laughs> I can plop one of them little f- things in my ear and just have the Word of God going all the time. My wife's worried because it has radiation; it'll kill me. And you know. she's read articles on it and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's, it's, it's worth it, <laughs> I think, <laughs> right? Because I'm getting I'm getting edified in, on my way. Okay, so. So whether you do Apple EarPods or not, do something where you put the Word of God in your ear. Read it out loud. Memorize it. I'm uh, thinking about preaching Isaiah next after this. And so I am immersed right now in Hebrew. I've been listening to Dr. Barrick and going through all the different uh, lessons there on the Hebrew text because I really want to uh, get a better understanding of Hebrew and so one of the practices that I do is I pick up my Biblia Sacra and I open up the Hebrew text And not that I know that what I'm reading everywhere but I just read it out loud probably sound terrible probably a Jewish person would laugh at me and say that's not how you pronounce that you know. but I don't care I need to hear it I need to see it I need to read it I need to memorize it I need to meditate on it and so we do this all the time We hear the Word, sermons, teaching, lectures, audio Bibles, whatever. We read it religiously, methodically, regularly, with discernment. We treasure the Word, meaning we meditate on the Word of God. We hide it in our heart. We honor it with our time and we prioritize it into our schedule. If you don't prioritize it, it will not happen. It will not happen if you don't make it a priority. And... Lastly, we obey it by faith, by an act of principled obedience that rises above our emotional and circumstantial state of mind. Because our obedience to the Word of God is not based on the state of affairs or the state of our mind, but in the state of our souls which are in Christ. So James tells us, The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, which is probably his code for the gospel, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So you want the blessing of God in your life Don't be forgetful. Here, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Because this was the fundamental error of the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. Essentially, forgetfulness led to fake religion. It was that they had forgotten the word of the Lord. They had forgotten His marvelous deeds and His mighty acts. That he performed with an outstretched arm before them. And in forgetting his deeds, forgetting his word, their worship became fake, perfunctory, false, false fire. It was profession, not possession. It was claim, not conviction or confidence. They wouldn't stake their life on it. And Hebrews says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, let us fear while the promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, watch this, just as they also, what? Had good news, i.e. gospel news, preached to them. But the word they heard did not profit them. Wow. Because it was not United by faith in those who heard. It is dangerous to hear the Word of God if you will not unite it with faith. Right? I sometimes tremble when I know unbelievers are coming into our midst just to listen. Because I know what that's doing to them is that's either softening them for their salvation and their good, or it is hardening them for their condemnation and their perdition. It's terrifying. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, there, right before he says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade man. He says, what are we? We are a fragrance, life to life, death to death. Either we are a stench unto death, or we are the very fragrance of life itself. That's because that's what the gospel is. That is what the cross is. It is either folly to you or it is the power of God. There is no in-between. You know that. But notice, the all-important aspect here of this confidence is that the Word of God, the commands of Scripture, be united. They be a, there would be a doing, just to use Paul's language here, that you are Doing and you will continue to do so notice that notice the action that's involved here. It's not a one time doing. Oh boy, the Southern Baptists need to learn this lesson. It's not a signing the card. It's not a walking down the aisle. It's not a slipping up of your hand to receive Christ or walking forward, walking forward. I mean, who came up with that? I mean, can't receive Christ in my chair. So it's geographically bound where I anyway. No, it's in the heart. That's where it happens. But it's not a one-time thing in the sense of, okay, I checked off the religious box there. I'm good. No, it's an obedience and a continual obedience to do what He is commanding us to do. That is the way. That is the direction. Speaking of direction, look at the last verse. He says, May the Lord... Direct your hearts, and now this verb, to direct, has two prepositional phrases, governing both prepositional phrases, and in a sense what he's saying is, may he direct you, A, into the love of God, and B, into the steadfastness of Christ. And so, what does he mean by direct? This uh, Greek word here, katuthunei. Katuthune, just also a Old Testament use of this term, it's in the Septuagint, but it just literally means to be led in a straight path. Uh, 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 to, I guess to bring it into view here, it is a call to walk straight, to be led in a stable, spiritually sound, doctrinally orthodox direction. In other words, when we think of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. These are not reckless, sort of foolish, romanticistic love. Uh, this, is, uh, this is very uh, methodical, what Paul is laying out here. Basically, it's like the old covenant way of saying to be the righteous man, to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, not to sit in the seat of the scoffer, etc., etc. It's to walk with your feet straight. What did he tell the kings of Israel? What did he tell the nation uh, of Israel in covenant? Don't look to the left, to the right, Don't get off the path. Stay straight. That's the path of blessing. That's the way to life. And notice how he directs them. May the Lord, he says, may the Lord direct your hearts. And so interesting, not surprising as we think about a subject like obedience, assurance of faith. It's not surprising that our heart becomes the context in which this all happens. It is the heart. It is as if here the heart represents the totality of the Christian life. He could have just said, may he direct your whole life to do this. May he direct your whole soul in this way. May he direct your heart. But I think by using cardia, the word heart, I think he wants to get into the intimacy of it. Into the inner man. He wants to get into the nuts and bolts of your soul and mind. He wants to get inside of our our emotions, affections, motives, our thoughts, our thought world. That's what He wants. He wants from the heart, unlike Israel, that we love God with genuine zeal, genuine affections, and ultimately with genuine saving faith. That's what He wants. Bearing in mind, brothers and sisters, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, everything in our life flows from our heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the heart proceed thefts and lies and murders and adulteries. It's all flowing out of the heart. The citadel of our life is in the heart. And therefore, He is directing us, He is guiding us, to the Lord of our hearts, who is the knower and the discerner of the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart, you can have all kind of stuff going on right around you, outside of you, uh, in relationship to you. But God knows the heart, right? He knows the inner workings. What did God tell, or what did Samuel? What was his conditions? You know. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the inside, right? Can't escape. Next to your conscience is the very presence of the omnipresent God, the Watcher. He knows all our steps, He understands all of our thoughts, He knows all of our motives. So our hearts may be found in Him. That's what, that's what Paul ultimately wants here. And you can see the same exact thing in the Old Testament. Let me read to you a verse in Chronicles, incredibly parallel to what Paul's talking about right here. First Chronicles 29, beginning of verse 17. Since I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things, David's speaking, so that now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here, make their offerings willingly to you. "O oh, Lord," It's like Paul's prayer. "The God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people, and direct their hearts to you." It's exactly what Paul wants. He wants to direct us to him. In a way that is sound, remember, katuthuno, sound, uh, safe, straight, direct. No sloppy agape. (laughs) Yeah. God is a God of order, He is the Holy One of Israel. He requires from us perfect obedience you know that? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. It's not just the Old Testament. Somehow Christians have this false notion that, oh, no, no, it's only under the Old Testament with the law. And that's where God wanted you to be perfect and you had to keep all these rules and regulations. But in the New Testament, you know, God sort of grades on the curve, you know. Where did we get this? And Peter tells us plainly, quoting Leviticus, That God is holy and we ought to be holy like God. And so the standard for holiness and righteousness before our God in the new covenant does not go down. If anything, it goes up. No, not with a bunch of other uh, additional rules and regulations. Not by governing our clothing or our food or our diet. Governing our calendars and things like that anymore. Necessarily, I say necessarily because there are things like, you know, acts, don't eat, you know, don't drink blood, strangle for animals and don't be immodest and don't, you know, things, uh, things like that, the obvious things. But now, you know, God and the law of Christ wants us to see everything through the, com- the commandments of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, don't say that you love me and you do not obey what I say. It doesn't sound like the standard has gone down at all. What's the last thing here? last thing I want to pick up here is the concept of the maintenance of assurance, the maintenance of our assurance. And this is maybe the most important thing. Paul looks at these believers. He sees evidence of their faith, and he is confident that God is in them and that God is working among them, and they are being pleasing to God. And we can have the same assurance if we understand the nature, the foundation, and the context of the virtue that is set before us here in this final phrase, which is the steadfastness of Christ. Direct them in this way into the love of God. And so when God's love is is overflowing in our lives, it will overflow back to Him. It will overflow back to one another. And when we do that, simultaneously we are called to maintain, in a sense, to maintain our soul's Keep yourselves, Jude said, in the love of God. No, that doesn't say save yourself. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that the progression of your sanctification involves, to use Paul's language, fear and trembling in the working out of your salvation. Notice he didn't say the working for your salvation. Uh Uh-uh. Then, you know... Paul would have undone all of his theology in Romans. I don't think he's going to risk that. So I think he's going to say, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling, which means this is the progressive nature of sanctification. But what of this steadfastness of Christ? What do we make out of this? This word here, hupomone, just literally means to endure uh, to persevere, uh, to be patient. And so first, understanding what, it, what the virtue of, of, it, of steadfastness, what, what the virtue is itself, that it's a gift of God, that it's part of the ordo salutis, that part of being in a genuine saving relationship with God means that we will persevere, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, we will persevere to the end and be saved, and be saved. Turn back one more time with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Let me just read again a little bit further here. Because so many of the same components that are found here in Thessalonians are found there in Colossians. And he says, as he exhorts them to have a walk worthy of the Lord, to be pleasing to him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And then He even goes on to talk about joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I was just thinking, boy, I can just expound on that forever. But what is He saying here? What's he saying here is this. Is as we walk worthy... As we walk in a way that's pleasing, we will have the necessary strength and power so that we will attain to all steadfastness. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be a rock? Always tossed to and fro, up, down. You had a good day, you had a bad day. Okay, we live in this present, and we'll get there, we live in this present evil age where we will never achieve, let's say, some sort of spiritual utopia, folks, but at the same time, I think there is a constancy that we can have. Paul would call that in Galatians, being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That's the nature of the virtue itself, but the foundation of the virtue is also Absolutely important. What I would say is that the foundation of this virtue is Christ's example. And I take it from the Greek uh, uh, genitive phrase when he says the steadfastness of Christ. This is important. I didn't want to bog you guys all down with the grammar today, but some of you are going to get mad at me for that. So, man, you see, this is an impossible task. (laughs) Some of you all want the grammatical categories, okay? And the the grammatical category here is sort of important because uh both in the phrase the love of god and the steadfastness of christ these are either subjective or objective genitives what does that mean does it affect the meaning yeah in a sense it does because uh, it, it, on the one hand uh, what paul could be saying uh, in terms let's just look at the, the the phrase the love of god may he direct your hearts into the love of god i.e the love that god has for you that's a, that that would be more of like a uh uh, of a subjective uh, notion, the the love that flows from God to us, or the love that we have for God, so that God becomes the object of our love. Is that what he's talking about? What 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 about the steadfastness of Christ? Is this the steadfastness that came from Christ that was exhibited by Christ, or is this the steadfastness that is given by Christ? Oh, come and see me after the sermon if you know. No, I I, I think I know, and what grammars have actually uh, concluded with phrases like this is that what we're looking at here is what's called a comprehensive genitive or a plenary genitive, which is a genitive that means both. In other words, why settle? (laughs) Both are implied. But here, I want to focus on this last phrase. I want to focus more on Christ's example of perseverance because... The virtue of perseverance is rooted in the very steadfastness of Christ, i.e., the steadfastness that Christ himself exhibited, that he possessed, that he modeled for us. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter lays this out beautifully, capitalizes on this very thing. Beginning in verse 20, 1 Peter 2, what credit is it? There, if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure, there's the word, with patience. In other words, what he's saying is, if you are being beaten for your own foolishness, don't say, oh, poor me, I'm being persecuted. (laughs) What he's saying is, don't be foolish, (laughs) right? If you're you're suffering for your own sin, that's on you. Don't say, oh, woe is me, I'm so pious, I suffer in this world. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. He says, but if... When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God for... That's a very important uh, uh, conjunction. You have been called for this purpose, i.e., to suffer patiently in this way. Stop trying to get away from it. Stop writing books, Christians, that talk about how to alleviate all suffering from the Christian life so as to have your best life now. That is an over-realized eschatology. Uh-uh. By the decree of God, we have been appointed to suffer in this life. And we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer ridicule. Jesus said, oh, how blessed are you when men revile you, speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. How blessed are you And and, and I think that's what he's talking about here. We've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin. That's our very first temptation right there. When we suffer, the very first temptation is to sin. And so Job, Job's wife, curse God and die. Just call it a day, religiously speaking. What you keeping up all this religion for? What are you striving for all this holiness for? Are you going against the current all the time? Fighting against the current of the world? Is it really worth it? After all, just look what God allows in your life. Suffering, sickness, persecution, loss of life, loss of children. I was marveling at my daughter the other day, just looking at just how cute and beautiful and smart and scary smart sometimes and and uh and just how god made her fearfully and wonderfully and i thought you know i don't know what kind of metal i'm made out of there's a period of time when martin luther lost a child like every other year Stop! <sighs> incredible a matter of fact Piper says there was a year in Luther's life where at the death of one of his children, he preached more that year than any other year. I thought, man, that dude was made out of some strange metal. Because I think I would just crumble. I think i just like, I say that with God's power. I don't want to undermine the grace of God. But you know what I mean? It's like you think if any time is the appropriate time to sort of back off of religion for a second... Theology, exegesis, translating the Bible. Hello, Luther. How about you take a break? A little sabbatical. You know, you might need that. How many Christian organizations, counseling organizations, said, take a break, go, go on a sabbatical, and just go retreat? Luther's like, no, I, I'm preaching more this year than ever. Wow. Now, remarkable. Why? Because this is following in his steps, this is being realistic. That we live in a present evil age. And that's my last point. My last point is this, that even as Christ suffered, even as He committed no sin in the midst of His suffering, even though no deceit, obviously it says, no deceit found in His mouth while being reviled. He did not revile in return. No vengeful spirit. No revengeful spirit. He resigned Himself to the sovereignty of God and was content to do so. To commit it to Him. He uttered no threats. He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. That's what we do, brothers and sisters, in the heat of the moment when we are tested and tried and the crucible of our trials and suffering comes with crushing power and crushing force into our lives. What can you do but entrust yourself? Continue daily, moment by moment, entrusting yourself to Him who judges righteously. He will make it all right he'll correct it all. He will bring this whole wicked, vile, wretched, evil earth to justice. He'll do away with all the suffering, all the injustice, everything that is abominable. God will do away with it all one day. And we trust that. We trust that. Finally, therefore, the context of this virtue, what is the nature of the virtue? The nature of the virtue is that we persevere, we wait patiently. The nature of the virtue is that this is the language of endurance. The foundation of the virtue is that Christ himself is our example in how we are to persevere. His steadfastness becomes our steadfastness. And finally, the context of this virtue is that we suffer and we Go through trials in this present evil age. And so I can think of no better place to finish here than to take you to Hebrews chapter 12 and to remind you that in this life you are going to feel the weight of the burdensome age in which we live. The fallen age. The fallen age. And you will also... You will also feel, in a sense, you also feel the vexation of this decadent world. You'll feel the oppression all around you. It's part of it, but I want to fix your eyes on a different metaphor. You, you, you're also going to feel the burn of the race. When's the last time you exercised really hard? So I know all of you exercise really hard. Uh, when's, when's the last time one of you worked out really hard to the point where you felt the burn? My people that went to Israel with me, remember going up Masada? Chris Matthews beat all of us. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> not surprised. He 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 beat us all. But but be honest, Chris, did you feel the burn about halfway up? A bit. <laughs> okay, good. It makes me feel better because I felt the dying. <laughs> I felt like I was dying, you know. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and then I had Felix in my ear the whole time. Oh, Felix. I had Felix next to me telling me, come on man, a little bit of a little, little, little bit of I'm, I'm thinking, be quiet. <laughs> I don't know what's worse, the burn of climbing this mountain or listening to you in my ear all day. No, I love, I love Brother Felix. And and we made it, right, Felix? <laughs> actually, when we got to the top of the mountain, Felix was ready to die on me, and I actually felt okay. So he encouraged me. Thank you, brother. You, you took the lower road. You were the encourager. I received the encouragement all the way up. Life is a race. The Christian life is likened unto a race because in a race it takes endurance. That's what we're talking about here. Perseverance. And it takes a willingness to go through the burn, the burn of it all. When it gets hot and heavy, and you don't think you got one last lap, one last rep, one last step to climb, you are told to climb a little bit more. Just go a little further. Okay. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. ah, How about that for you and the Klein group? Klein's theology of the eminence of heaven all around us. We have uh, witnesses all around us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance that is non-sinful hindrances to the Christian life. And there are many, many, many non-sinful hindrances to the Christian life. And those are areas that we may have to just commit to you, identify those, figure those out for yourself, pray about those, ask yourself, is this excellent, is this worthy, is this praiseworthy, and and just lay that before God in your heart. And then you also lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, and so that is sin. Obviously, the greatest hindrance to the Christian life is sin, And by laying aside hindrances and sins, we will be the better for it because we can run with endurance the race that is set before us like Jesus. And it's not just that Jesus is our example, but Jesus is also our goal and Jesus is also our source of energy, strength. You derive it from your vital union. With Christ. As you look to Him. How? By faith. may not look like a red ribbon at the end of a race, but He's there. More there than the ribbon. He's there. In a sense, He is the... And and, and as you look to Him, you draw strength to keep running. That's the dynamic. That's the way that it works. Why? Because... As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we realize that we are gazing upon the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And we will despise the shame of our own crosses, our own trials and suffering. And He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh man, I tell you what for consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart obviously the book of hebrews is speaking to a very particular issue and that is in hebrews chapter 10 beginning verse 35 and that is the fact that these hebrews were being uh, they were being radically persecuted they were being arrested they were being beaten and uh, apparently, in some form or fashion, they were be actually being paraded in public as public spectacles to be made fun of. Okay, something like what what happened to Christians in ancient Rome when they were taken into the uh, the, the Colosseums and paraded out there for everyone to see before they were fed to the lions or burned at the stake. Something like that. And the book of Hebrews is saying, don't lose sight of your reward. Don't lose sight of your reward. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Stay focused. You're almost there. And so, brothers and sisters, I know this is the deepest the- theological word that I'm going to tell you today, but you're almost there. Stay focused. Near than when you first believed. You are nearer. You are closer to the eschaton. You are closer to the finish line. You're closer to the reward. And then who knows? Because Jesus said, "I am coming quickly, and my reward is he might beat us to the end. <laughs> he might actually intrude before we uh, ascend to him. right? Let's pray that happens. That would be glorious, wouldn't it? Might get a little crazy on planet Earth for a while. But that's all right. We'll make it. Where we're the church, we'll persevere. God will protect his people and we will make it through all the trials and tribulations and all the antichrist forces that are coming against us seemingly from every side and from every angle and in every way conceivable and in some ways even that are inconceivable that are coming. But it doesn't matter because in Christ means that we are secure, we are safe, and therefore we can be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord in the work of the Lord. You start looking around at how discouraging the life is, how discouraging the culture is, how discouraging, you know, whatever, politics or whatever it is. You can get very discouraged, but we do we don't lose heart when our eyes are fixed on him. Yeah. Father, help us therefore to understand the eyes of faith. Help us therefore to understand What it means to, in the privacy of our heart, to treasure your word on the one hand, and on the other hand, to treasure you. And Lord, we pray that you would use your word to strengthen us. We want to be commendable like the Thessalonians. We want to have the same commendation that Paul gave to this church that He was confident about them because they are doing and they're going to continue to do the will of God and they are being guided to the love of God and they are being guided to the endurance of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We pray that You would work all these things into our hearts and that they would be wrought there by the Spirit of our God for Your glory. Search us try us and convict us in every way to see the falsehood within us and to show us our falsehood and so that we may rightly repent of our falsehood and that we would rightly run the race having shed all of the excess weight of hindrances and sins both. We pray this now, Lord, for your glory. Christ's name, amen.